Welcome to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 40, Comings of Messiah. to the subject matter which has been given to us this time by Margaret Nittler. She wants us to talk about the second coming of the Messiah. And that presupposes there was a first coming. And I want to see how many comings there have been and are likely to be. And for that we'll have to have an aid in the form of a little diagram which I hope will help to clarify what we're talking about. I'm going to put seven numbers down beginning with zero which is also a number. Now you know that all numbers are symbolical and thought about in a symbolical way reveal things that confer meaning upon otherwise very obscure statements in religions and philosophies. So I'm going to start by putting the numbers down. So we're numbered 0 to 6. And we'll then define them and see how many comings are required in the cosmic process. The 0 at the top signifies God prior to creation with the potentiality of all forms hidden within him and not yet creating. So I'm going to call that quite simply God with Logos. The Logos is inherent in God, inseparable from him. Now we'll discuss what we mean exactly by Logos. And you remember we have a diagram of the word Logos, two O's with an S and three letter Lambda and the Greek letter Gamma together. Now we have to take that word Logos, which is linear and serial, and turn it into a diagram. The L, that's the Greek L, and the G, the Gamma, with the two O's and the S. Now the L means light equals consciousness total awareness. The gamma means dark, unconscious. The lambda means spirit, the gamma means matter, but the matter is only the spirit willing to be resistant to itself, to provide itself with the resistance. So there is no mystery of duality about it. That God 
with Logos in the end, is himself a hidden Logos before his cosmic expression. Logos means word and ratio and intellect of the highest order, not empirical intellect of materialistic science, pure a priori thinking from pure logic. Logic derives from this Logos word. Now Heraclitus used that word Logos in ancient Greece to signify energy which he symbolizes fire which is of itself eternally flowing no man bathes twice in the same river and this Logos is light and substance, spirit and matter consciousness and unconsciousness immediate efficiency and resistance together Dialectics means that we must hold simultaneously pairs of opposites. If we do so, we solve certain problems which we cannot solve any other way. So when we think of the Logos, let us translate that word into this diagram. and say the diagram represents a six-boat wheel, and six is the basis of the word existence. Existere means out of six, sixfold. Five fingers spring out of the palm. And there are differentiations of the hiddenness of power and intelligence symbolizing the palm. The palm is P-A-L-M. The P means the precision of pure pneuma, that is spirit. And the M at the end symbolizes substantialization of the same and the AL between is God so it goes intellectual precision pi ratio and pneuma substance recipient thereof as polarizations of that primary word for God how the L goes to the M and the A goes to the P <coughs> L means to bind and to stimulate. It moves towards substance by itself binding. The A means activation, and activation formulates, and formulation in its pure form is intellect, is intelligence, is precision in every sense of the word. If we take the P, the ALM has the meaning of the palm. We see why certain priests long ago, a very great intelligence, named the parts of the human body with these special symbolic letters. So that by meditation upon the parts of the body and their functions, we could arrive at the true definition of what God is. God is an active binder. God is a freeing being the A and the binding being the L. He creates and creation is encapsulation and encapsulation is binding. But he also releases progressively the bound in the process we call evolution. So he's both the holder of the key of loosing 
and the key of binding. The A moves to the P and the L to the N. You notice that the base the PA gives you the father word and the M is the mother word binding. It's very important to recognize the binding function of the mother principle symbolized in the M. The oldest word for a mother that we have in various languages is Ma and it means substantial activity and it binds its progeny to itself because it has to feed them, has to care for them. So in a very special sense we say the role of the mother is the role of dedication to self-sacrifice for the perpetuation of the evolutionary process. Now if mothers were to realize that they are instruments of evolution of higher intelligence and that their terrible little offspring, which are called little blessings, are there to evolve towards spirit and ultimately to the pure consciousness of God. So when we think about the O, the zero there, we have to think of a very zealous, living, discriminating zone of activity. Now that O has been written, in this case by me, about the concept of the O, pre-exists in the cosmos and derives from a force that gradually posits itself. And when we draw the line positing and then the O, we make the number six. So we have to think about the Logos as the very principle of sixness equals existence. Without that bondage, without that circumscription, without that self-binding, no creature could exist. We have a binding integument, the skin, covering our body, and we take things in and let things out in and from our zone of encapsulation. And this zone of encapsulation is what we call self. So selfhood is the very beginning of existence. And existence implies selfhood. To understand that is to get rid of a lot of erroneous ideas about what it means to be selfish and unselfish. There are two kinds of self, stupid self and intelligent self. And they are both self. And the self is the fact of their encapsulation. Now, therefore, we have God with Logos inherent, inseparable from him. And God means infinite sentient power. Infinite sentient power. The sentience explains how we know about it. The power explains what we can do about it. Now the function of that God is to go down all the way to the bottom level, right down here. So zero and six join together. Because at the bottom we want the total creation enlightened about its origin. And that it says in the Bible here, no man shall teach another of God, for all shall know him. So at the bottom we can write Logos, that's the same one as that one, enters all mankind. 
Now that's the final condition of evolution. And man means a counter, an enumerator, an evaluator. So all beings, whatever, are correctly called man if they can count. Now that includes all living creatures, animals and vegetables, as well as so-called human beings. All that can count, a spider can count to make a web, to catch flies, a worm can count to get leaves and take them underground, a plant counts by selecting particular chemistry from the air and the soil. So in that sense there are no non-men in existence. All living beings in that sense are men. William Blake went a little further by saying every grain of sand on the beach is a man. And he was quite correct because the mineral world also selects. There are chemical affinities and those affinities are selections. They are powers of choice. So, we want to get from the zero God with an inherent non-manifest Logos to all mankind enlightened by the same Logos. So the first thing we have to do is make a macro Logos, very big one, as the first step towards that final stage. Macro Logos, the big Logos, is the totality of the manifest universe viewed as a very large sphere. When you look out at night to the stars, you see the stars are arranged in a vast circling system. They're actually within a sphere of being. And that presupposes that the cosmos, and the word cosmos means beautiful order, the cosmos is fundamentally a geometrical proposition. Mathematical, logical, geometrical proposition. It is put there by power that has this inherency of formulating itself logically, mathematically, geometrically. So when we think of the macro logos, we have to look out of the sky at night, look at all the stars we can see on a nice clear night, and there's no moon to dust, that's just pure stars, and notice the great wheel of the star system. And the totality of it is what we mean by the macro logos. Now that macro logos presented to creatures not yet enlightened would not of itself be able to save those creatures. A worm digging in the earth does not come out contemplate the stars and say those stars imply an inherent Logos hidden in the primordial power of the Logos. You would not say there is an invisible God making all these stars for myself, worm, to meditate upon. So we need a, a method of getting the macro-logos concept into the human race to enlighten them all. So therefore we have to have prophets. Prophets. Prophets are people who posit rationally beforehand something to be attained. Now as we put the zero to the six, 
We went from the one, I went to the five. We want uh, the macro-locals to become manifest in the time process there, and we're going to call that the second coming. Can I put C for coming, or would you like the whole word? The whole word. Greedy. That second coming of Logos. Now, when the prophets speak, they do what is called prophesying. And prophesying is very peculiar, very powerful, very magical stuff. Because it describes things not yet existent. But by the very description, it inserts ideas into the mind of man and causes man to look forward with expectancy towards the realization of the thing prophesied. In other words, the prophets actually cause a growth in the nervous system of the human race to enable that nervous system to be able to comprehend the meaning of the Logos when it finally comes. So we can make a rule, no prophecies, no Messiah. Unless the prophets prophesy coming, embodied intelligence, then no Messiah can come. Because that Messiah has got to come in a human organism that has been specially prepared by definitions of what it is going to be like. And the ones who make the definitions of that coming being are called the prophets. Prophecy prepares the nervous system to grow, to become finally a true vehicle of manifestation of the Logos. When the Logos comes into a body, it is called the Messiah for that body. That Messiah word, like the word Moses, means lifted out of the water into life. And there the water symbolizes the M function, the mayor, inertia. To lift people out of inertia, which they tend to fall into, there must be prophecies saying that freedom is a possibility. Choice is a possibility. Intelligence is a possibility. And when it appears, it will be in such a manner, such a manner. And by this definition, there will come to be intelligent beings. And they will incarnate in themselves the full meaning of the Logos. But those prophets have got to prepare the way for a Messiah that is a saviour, that is one that lifts us out of the inertia of matter. Messiah means he who lifts us out of the inertia of matter. And they must prepare the way. And then we can say, here comes... I'm sorry, I'm writing the wrong language. All this is symbolic, of course. We will call this first coming of Logos. Remember, that Logos is our saviour. That Logos is intelligent, geometrical, mathematical 
logic. That is the saviour. It's that intelligence that makes high tech. It's that intelligence that built your car. It's that intelligence that made Concord. It's that intelligence that made everything that is in the universe. So, the prophets say, the Logos is going to be incarnate, and we tell you he will come, and we tell you what will be his characteristics. And by this description of him, then men begin to learn, begin to listen. So the prophets go down from two to four, and at the level four, they elect. That means the few who are called out of the masses. Because when any subject matter is taught, there are always a few who learn it first. You cannot actually broadcast, even with today's tech. You cannot broadcast a message to the whole world. Suppose you broadcast a message to the Aboriginals of Australia, the Papua New Guineans, the people in Vietnam, in Korea, in Japan, in China, in Russia. How many languages do you need to broadcast it? How much control have you got over the reactions of those people? Will they all respond in the same way to the one message? Well, in America they do have attempts to do this because they broadcast to the world. I don't know whether you heard in the middle of the night American religious broadcasts which actually tell you the meaning of salvation and they broadcast in many languages. Some of them actually got this for bouncing the message from outer space back to the earth all over. So that the message is going all over. But tell me, who listens? How many people listen? How many people, when they see John Gielgud reciting poetry, don't switch to football, or golf, or spot black or something? Yeah. Very few. And the few who listen first are called the elect of Logos. They're the ones who, through listening to the prophets, have acquired a capacity for higher level choices. And that leaves us with the first Logos in the third position there. And if we count the zero as a number, it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And when we go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, that number three there is the point of incarnation of the Logos. And we're going to put for his symbol there a hexam, and we're going to turn it by a simple process of putting a lambda in it, meaning light, intelligence, and that is the cube, that is the cube, which is a six-faced human being, incarnate Logos. Six faces because you know that there are powers higher than ours, you know that there are powers lower, you know you've got a future ahead of you not yet made, and a path behind you weighing, tending to produce inertia, and powers developed to the right, and deficiencies not yet overcome to the left. And those six 
opposing faces constitute the human being. So now we can talk rather more carefully about the first and second coming. Now the first coming was the one and the step down from zero into one, the macrocosmic logos, the whole system of all the stars and solar systems and planetary systems and lives, all of those were really the first one. But that was not in time. That was the whole system in its simultaneity, non-serial, therefore not temporal. So what we call the first of the Logos is a time function. So we'll put the symbol of time, Tm, there. And T means cross, fixation, crucifixion, and the M means the substance. You know, the first coming talked about by people that believe in the messianic coming is the first temporal coming. But the true ontological first was the macrologus up there. Now the second coming of the logos is yet to come. But before that logos comes, the elect of the logos goes to the very advanced intellects, sensitive feeling beings who already anticipate that coming and they are prepared to let out that information and hope that by doing so they will function like the prophets did for them, only they will function for all mankind. And really it's a very simple proposition. The whole is going to enlighten each minutest part because it owes to all its parts its whole enlightenment because if it does not enlighten all its parts then the parts will be ignorant and will oppose its purpose so there is a total creaturely enlightenment by Logos implicit in the primordial act of creation Now the question in this diagram is how do we get from our position down here we are all mankind all mankind is inside our skin how do we develop it? The answer is we must accept that the second coming of the Logos can occur in the individual elect before it occurs in all mankind simultaneously we all know there are people on earth, uh, about 5%, who are genuinely interested in philosophical, ontological, religious, spiritual problems. But we know that 95% at this stage of evolution are not interested in that subject matter. And somehow they have to become educated towards attaining that interest. Now, if we look at this diagram very carefully, we can say every stage is involved into the original. It's all co-present with itself. Within what we call God, which is infinite sentient power, there is the totality of enlightened creature, creatureliness 
which is hidden as a mystery inside pre-creation of God. Now remember creation means encapsulation, ensphering, embodying. Prior to the embodying, the encapsulation, this God is an infinite power. And it has not compressed itself into a spherical form. And therefore it has not made for itself a body called Macrologos, the big reason, the big plan. We'll put the word plan in there. P-L-A-N. Now P-L is the symbol for Pilo or reason. And A-N is a symbol for serpent. So, reason, snake. Reason, sensuality. The plan is how to control sensuality by reason without destroying the serpent with the reason <coughs> and without evading the reason by the serpentine activity. Now the prophets are telling us for what? That pH there, we will write above it, the Greek letter phi, and that means all there is analyzed. The E means life, the T is fixation. The S, of course, in this case, is an issuant pluralizer. And the prophet's function is to describe rationally beforehand the characteristics of a perfectly reflexive, self-conscious, self-creative being. Now you know that certain insects, in which the butterfly is the most obvious, have a power to appear in a form like a caterpillar and then to wrap themselves up and become apparently a dead thing and then come out as a butterfly. They have a power called metamorphosis, a change of form. And they do it by a process of liquefaction of their organs. The caterpillar is structured internally in a certain way. Now to change from butterfly to egg, egg to caterpillar, caterpillar to butterfly, requires the removal of the formal determinants for a time, the liquefaction of the organs, reduction to a primordial fluid form, and then the rebuilding out of that fluid of a new form. And we tend to think that the butterfly can do it, some beetles can do it, various creatures can do it, but we can't do it. It's not true. We can do it. And that word psyche also has the significance butterfly. We can change. But, imagine the condition of a caterpillar that's been eating the leaves until it's stacked with food energy, and then it commits itself to being wrapped up and becoming immobile, perhaps stuck on the underside of a leaf or hanging from a thread where any predator may come along and eat it. Because that happens in nature, doesn't it? Predators come and destroy things. So the object of the caterpillar is to disguise itself as much as possible to reduce the possibility of it being eaten. 
Would you believe that the fear of the human being to change his mind is exactly the same as the anxiety in a caterpillar when it wraps itself up and commits itself to the process of hysteresis, to the self-liquefaction? Our minds of human beings, from the time they begin to articulate words, try to structure themselves to become indestructible. Their aim is to survive, and to survive they must formulate, and they must make their formulations like strong citadels. They must become impregnable. So everything they inbuild from the time they begin to speak as babies aims at survival, and they only build in and like that which they believe at the time will actually aid their survival. So if somebody comes along with a new idea that contradicts an idea that they are built into their citadel wall, they feel immediately under attack and maybe they won't survive. So they tend to argue and try to destroy any argument that comes from outside, any logical proposition given to them, if it doesn't support their survival intention in accord with their existing verbal structure, they will try to destroy it. Quite naturally, but in the process, they will be nailing themselves into a dead system unless the citadel is built from Logos. They labor in vain, you labor without the Lord. Means you build to no effect if you don't build on the macrocosmic logical structure of reality. And yet we know unless we destroy the erroneous structure built by egotism verbally from babyhood, we cannot enter the kingdom of free spiritual creativity. And therefore what we call the egoic structure verbalized from babyhood in self-defense, that egoic structure must be destroyed. Now there are two deaths referred to. One is the death of your physical body, that's called first death, and the next one is the death of your ideological self-defining survival structure. Now it says, if you obey this logos, you will not be hurt of the second death. That means that the idea structure that you have built logically from this true macro logos, that structure once put inside you cannot be destroyed even by physical death. A physical death is you've got a well-furnished mind with a macro-logological base Instead of falling apart, which is what happens to erroneous ideas when they're exposed to a stimulus that they cannot assimilate. Instead of falling apart in that way, you have a structure that is absolutely resistant to all forces inimical that might come from outside. You therefore have a body of macrological immortality after death. Now you know perfectly well, and I've had several examples recently, and one this week 
of a man who actually had such a jumbled mind when he died that every member of his family were very upset by his condition at death because he was confused. Now can we imagine that a man who had been illogical all his life at death should suddenly assemble a defensive survival structure? Suddenly? Can we imagine it happening? Not easily. But if a man has worked all his life to establish a perfectly self-consistent macrological structure of thought in his being, then at death he's in absolute peace with himself and the removal of that formulated structure of pure truth, which is what macrologic is, survives physical death and the consciousness of that person is then immortal. You, you survive forever in all universes if you have absolute self-consistency. Now the prophets have prophesied it and have actually laid down rules which they have perceived by meditating on the Macrologos. <coughs> Those prophets used to go out in the middle of the night, look at the starry sky and meditate upon it and watch the rising of the sun and the setting thereof and the moon and its phases and gradually assimilate what this meant for man on earth and realize they were getting nearer and nearer to comprehension of the plan and therefore someday their collective knowledge would embody itself in some recipient human being whose body had been prepared by the expectancy created by prophecy. So the whole system is a guarantee that ultimately all mankind will become enlightened. But before that time the elect, the few who are interested first, must know about it. And they would not know about it if the prophets had not spoken about it and they would not know about it if they hadn't watched the night sky. It's not without significance that three of our major religions came out of the Arabian desert. Judaism, Christianity, Islam are simply a logical development. First phase of Judaic, fear of God. Fear of God runs through the Old Testament. Fear because you look up and you are amazed. If you have any intelligence at all, you think, could I control all this? And you say, no, I couldn't. And it appears there are earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and sun flares and weird eclipses. Can I control them? The answer is, not yet. So there is fear of the not yet understood whole system. So that is the Judaic religion in its first formulation. But gradually, through the activity of the Old Testament prophets, they refined it and they became so delighted with what they were discovering about this fearful great universe, they began to love what they were finding out, namely the structure, the pure logic, the dynamic, the kinetic, everything about it. Instead of becoming an object of fear, became an object of love. And it's at that point where 
the first temporary encounter in Logos says, now, new dispensation, love it. You have feared it, that's correct, because it is all powerful. Now you understand a little bit, you can begin to love that very possibility of becoming totally enlightened. So we say, Judaic religion is based in fear of the Lord, the New Testament is based in love of the Lord, and that leaves the Islamic one, knowledge of the Lord. The Islamic dispensation is because you have feared the Lord and have loved the plan progressively revealed through the prophets, study the Lord, study the universe, and that gave a tremendous impulse to Islamic science. Long before Europe had any real science as we now know it, Islam had already started a process of scientific development based on the concept fear the Almighty, yes, love the Almighty, yes, and then know the Almighty. And that caused Muhammad to say, this is the last religion. The first one was the religion of Adam, but the third one closes the system. You can fear a thing, you can love it, and you can know it. And when you know it, that's the end of the process. Therefore, he is called the seal of the prophets. So we have a three-stage development. Now, a lot of this stuff made its way through the Northwest Passage into India and changed its form and became Brahmanism there. So we can say that that religion also came out of the same source as these three Arabian religions. And in fact, when the Muslims discovered the Hindu religion, they just appropriated it as a true extension of their own original position. Now, Blake said, unless the baby born in Bethlehem is born in us as an individual, it avails us nothing. It's no good talking about it. That baby is simply a personification incarnate of Logos. Any person that begins to comprehend the Logos is said, in Christian terms, to have the mind of Christ. Now the word Christ is a nice, simple word. If we write Logos that way, then we write Christ this way. Christ means a circle, and we put a T in it. That's the word Christ. In its original, symbolic form. Anybody who has the mind that begins to understand that all being is circumscribed and all being is active as to its capacity for choice and passive as to its suffering, the choices it makes. Such a being is called a Christos or participator in the macrocosmic logos mind. Our Jewish friends of mine say very often that they have difficulty in accepting the historical incarnation in Jesus of Nazareth of the infinite God. It's difficult because of the inertia of training. But the infinite God is omnipotent. There's no reason at all why he should not incarnate sometime. And if that Jesus of Nazareth was not the first true 
incarnation of the Logos and it's that Messiah is yet to come. When he comes, then the people then living will have exactly the same difficulty in dealing with the idea as the present unbelievers have. Whenever he comes, it doesn't matter. It will still constitute a difficulty for those who believe that the infinite cannot embody itself in its fullness in the finite. But that's to say that the infinite sentient power that we call God is not omnipotent. But if he is omnipotent, he can do anything whatever. So we have to say, we must open our minds. A man appears on earth and says, I am the door, I am the doubt. I am telling you how to do it. DLT. Analyze, synthesize, fixate. Or analyze, synthesize, define. Fixate. DLT. Now, if you analyze, synthesize, and fixate your conclusion, truly, you are a door of the revelation of the macro logos in the finite individual human being. Anyone who does that can become a door. In any science that you studied in your university degree pursuits, those sciences have been doors. Before you knew them, you couldn't get through into certain information. When you learn the terminology, you could get through. To learn the terminology, you must analyze, synthesize, and fixate, or record the products of your analysis and synthesis. What could be simpler than that? Any person can act as a door to another person. A young 18-year-old boy the other day said to me, he'd been thinking about the word relation, thinking about relation between people, and he had come up with a definition. Relation is opening doors for each other. That was very good. Now, most of the associations of human beings are attempts to close doors for each other. Let's look at that simple proposition with seven stages, finishing up in six number existence, in which ultimately every creature will be a self-conscious, freely self-determined manifestation of the infinite God Logos that is eternally present with itself prior to all creation, through creation and after creation. And if we understand the whole process, we gain immortality through the self-consistency of the formal constructive apprehension of that simple diagram. Now the question is, do you want to become immortal? Some people don't. Late last night, in a thing called Naked City, which is perfectly based on true police records, I saw a dramatized version of the life of a man who was so disgusted with himself he asked his son to kill him. His behavior was so horrible in his view that he wanted to die. 
and he hadn't got the courage to kill himself. So he asked his son, please help me to die. Now what is the condition of a man like that, who chooses mortality because he's so disgusted with himself, in his being, his action, his thought, his feeling, he thinks he should be annihilated. Now he's called a lost soul. Think of the opposite. A man who works very hard to comprehend his situation, studies that logological base of existence and attains progressively more and more and more self-consistency until you can look at one diagram, either a Mogandovid, double triangle, or a crossing in a circle, or a yantra, or whatever symbol, and say that means my personal self-consistency, which, because it is self-consistent, must be of the great God's self-consistency, and He is the immortal. And you participate, you become one of the immortals. And then, after you've died, in that state of perfect self-consistency, you can either stay in any other world there is, or you could come back to this world and do certain works which you have observed need doing. Now in Buddhism, you have a concept called the Bodhisattva concept. Now that is the concept of a fellow who is actually on the edge of total Buddhahood, and he's going to disappear from the earth entirely through his self-enlightenment unless he sacrifices himself by staying on earth to help other people towards it. And that's considered to be a very, very high level of being, where a person says, I could go out of this world because I know how to be so consistent in any world that I can stay in it or come back in it at will. So we can roam through an infinity of different worlds if we have a body of self-consistency. And if we haven't, we're going to fall apart. Now the enemy, remember, is the egotistic structure of self-defense built by babies from the first verbalizations up to the age at which you meet them. And that structure will fight to defend itself. And if it wins, that person is doomed to be held in by its own definition. And that's called hell. Suppose you have erroneous ideas and you work on them very hard to justify them and pretend to yourself they're quite right, although you know they're erroneous, but you've used them as a battering weapon against the external world so effectively that you're stuck with an erroneous view of the world. Let's take an example. Any materialistic empirical scientist behaviorist who believes that the human race is nothing but a kind of machine with no will, no capacity for choice, no intelligence, just a reactive mechanical chemical system, and no more. Now, he's paralyzed his creativity by his own definition. Now, he dies in that state. He can't develop further because he's defined for himself a locked-in condition. So, post-mortemly, all he can do is live within the dictatorship 
and with erroneous content. And meanwhile, they're out of the world. When we place down at the sixth level, the lowest level, and a man is identified with existence but doesn't believe in the origin of existence, but then post-mortem he's stuck with the idea that he's a material being. Some of those beings, when they die, are so wrapped up in their own definitions that when you meet them post-mortemly in meditation, they're absolutely convinced that they haven't died. They're still living within their finite definition. They don't know they've died. They're locked in an erroneous idea. Those are lost souls. Some are locked in concepts of guilt. I saw a man crouching on the ground and his body was shaking spasmodically because he was being whipped by a devil. But the devil was a projection of his mind because he thought he was a sinner and he thought he was guilty and nobody could make him think he wasn't guilty because he was. Because he knew that he had done various misdeeds to other people and then he got older and older and then he couldn't misbehave anymore. He found he was on the wrong trail. And then he thought he needed punishing because of his wrong life process. So he counted out from himself a devil to whip him. And there he was, shaking with every lash of the whip. But there was no devil there other than his self-defining structure of his own guilt and his deserts. And how do you like that kind of existence? No, I prefer, personally, a reflexive, self-conscious, self-determinant, self-consistent, logological structure which I know could never change in any world whatever so that whether somebody kills me or not makes absolutely no difference to me because I know that that consistent structure cannot be broken you cannot break an absolutely self-defining system in which all the parts presuppose all the other parts. When you hear that little phrase, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Redeem means rejudge. I know that the Logos is a fact, that the universe is structured truthfully, that its truth is its self-consistency, and that by Embodying that, which you do by an act of assent to it, or acceptance, that your Redeemer lives in you. You rejudge any error you may make. You reassess it as an error, and you build into your being an absolutely self-consistent, logological, truly mathematical, truly geometrical structure which you can see in all eternity there and refer to it as the very center reference of your being. And with that, you can walk in and out of universes and other worlds and this one and return or leave at your own free will. Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes. Thank you.